Welcome to Stacy on the Right with your host, Stacy Washington. Look, I think that's the, the Democrats' message right now, which is uh, oppose everything and do nothing. It's frankly gotten really sad that their party has no message, no leadership, no solutions, and they want to fight a president who's trying to lead and who's doing amazing things for our country uh, and things that are really hard to argue with. We have a booming economy. He's created uh, job after job after job. Uh, he, the, ISIS is on the run one day after the next. Great things are happening across the globe, and particularly in America, and this president is leading that effort. And Democrats, frankly, they should join him in all of the great things that are happening in this country instead of fighting them, particularly since they have no ideas of their own. Welcome to Stacy on the Ride here on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. Fantastic day to be an American and to be able to get around and enjoy what is the greatest nation on the planet currently. We're winning that war. We're winning that race. And to be able to get on and do some radio and listen to some radio and get informed. We have a jam-packed program for you today. Lots of interesting discussion. We're going to tackle this whole democratic socialism thing. We are also going to be speaking with Brandon Cooper. He's an attorney and co-chair of the Maryland Black Republican Council. And we're also going to discuss what you just heard there, which is Sarah Sanders saying that they're are no real messaging opportunities for the Democrats just attacking President Trump and his supporters. It's like, hey, what have you got? Nothing. What can you do? Nothing except attack the president. Uh, so that's what they're currently engaging in. And it's not a winning proposition, especially when you consider the seriousness of the opportunity that's before us, which is bringing another Supreme Court justice onto the court to replace retiring Justice Anthony Kennedy. It's important for Americans, it's important for the process that we consider the individuals who are um, vying for the position and that that person be eminently qualified and above reproach, someone that we can look forward to uh, correctly adjudicating cases that come before the Supreme Court for decades into the future, as other justices have and are doing. And so it's... uh, a, a different kind of a question. I don't hear very many of the reporters and pundits asking the kinds of things that I would love to know, but some information is getting out. So Sarah Huckabee Sanders is on Fox and Friends, and they ask her about the SCOTUS nominees. It's number four. Sarah, on, uh, quickly on that Supreme Court pick, can you confirm that it, it, he's only interviewing people that were on that list? Because there's been rumors of adding a couple of additional names. Uh, the, the president has said he's, he's focused on, on that list, and, and as of right now, uh, he's going to continue to stick with that list. Look, the main thing the president is looking for uh, are people that fit... Uh, the, the, the qualifications mm-hmm. that you would want in a Supreme Court justice. Uh, tremendous intellect, someone who will stick to upholding the Constitution, and somebody who has great judicial temperament. Those are the big things the president is looking for in a candidate, and he's got a great group to choose from, and I know he's going to make the right decision, and we're excited about his announcement on Monday. And that's what we're really looking forward to. Obviously, some good barbecue, some good food, some good friends some uh, wonderful opportunities for us to spend time with family and to unplug for a little bit. And we will be back with you here live on the program on uh, Friday of this week. And so it's going to be wonderful to have that time off. But on Monday, it's going to be back to business and the president's going to be looking at 
uh, making this announcement about who the prospective SCOTUS candidates are going to be. And there's been a lot of speculation. And that's fine. I, you know what? I actually welcome the speculation. It means people are engaged. It means people are really interested in uh, getting to the bottom of what's going on with the court and, and paying attention to the court. And the court is very important to Americans. It makes a, a huge difference in how we live and the things that we believe are normal, as in the court's uh, you know, decision to make abortion the law of the land and to say that it was absolutely a constitutional right, as opposed to saying, no, we're going to remand this to the states. We're going to leave this at the state level so that federalism can operate. And that's a problem. That's a real problem for us. So um, the possibility of him appointing another conservative justice, but one who actually doesn't consider himself to be a power monger, someone who's a swing voter, as Justice uh, Kennedy was was so often called, it's an interesting prospect because now I've heard on MSNBC and other places Pundits actually arguing over the fact that they keep saying, yeah, he was a conservative. He was a conservative. But they've also been saying, but he also was a swing voter. He was someone who respected um, individual rights. He was someone who who moderated the Republicans. I don't think that's what it was. Not at all. I think it was more like he was someone who enjoyed the power that it gave him to have all of the justices kind of at his beck and call, at his whims. And so he would swing back and forth when it suited him. And he allowed that to moderate his views. So um, interestingly enough, one of the things that that we're going to be talking about today has to do with the Supreme Court, and it has to do with the announcement that the Trump administration is going to rescind the Obama-era guidance on affirmative action. Now, remember, affirmative action has already been approved at the Supreme Court level. Um, and that should be enough. But the Obama administration actually added guidance that kind of spurred on and encouraged schools to take a student's race into account. Uh, and, and they wanted to encourage diversity in admissions. Now, that in and of itself, there's nothing really wrong with that. And, and when I say that, I'm, I'm saying there's nothing wrong with them considering the makeup of their student body when looking at who to accept into their schools. But to have the president, as a matter of policy, encouraging that and saying, you need to diversify your student bodies, that's a completely different thing. So done on its own, it's one thing. It's, it's something that shouldn't be a problem constitutionally. But to have the president saying, mm, you know, no, we need to do this differently. We need, to, we need to have a say in what these colleges and universities are doing that's not right. So what I see the Trump administration doing is going back and kind of righting a wrong that they, they don't feel the government should be involved in that. Now, the action is coming, obviously, as we just discussed, as the Supreme Court of the United States is due to make a huge swing. It's, it's going to change. And that change to a more conservative justice means that new lawsuits about affirmative action when they come before the court will be looked at much differently. Um, and the, the most recent significant ruling on the subject actually bolstered college's use of race among many factors. And the opinion's author was Anthony Kennedy. Now he's, he's resigned. He's no longer there. So um, now that he's not going to be in the mix, we're looking at a much different makeup. We're looking at something completely different. 
Um, so uh, what, what we're interested in, in finding out is why. Why is it that they're changing this policy? This formal announcement is actually comes from the Justice and Education Departments. And in the policy document, the administration said schools have a compelling interest in ensuring a diverse student body. And while race should not be the primary factor in admissions decisions, schools could lawfully consider it in the interest of achieving diversity. So institutions are not required to implement race-neutral approaches if, in their judgment, the approaches would be unworkable. In some cases, race-neutral approaches will be unworkable because they will be ineffective to achieve the diversity that an institution seeks. And this was in 2011 inside of the policy document. The administration issued similar guidance uh, in 2016 aimed at giving schools a framework for considering race to further the compelling interest in achieving diversity and avoiding racial, racial isolation. But what does affirmative action actually accomplish when it comes to um, kind of telling students what the other students that are in the student body, how they got there? Well, it's, it's a mechanism by which a lot of people consider students of color Basically, they didn't earn their way into the university. They didn't earn their way in. That's wrong. That's not something we want people to think of when we see people, um, when we see people coming into universities. We don't want an automatic stigma attached to students of color because they're automatically thought to be there because they're black and not because of their educational ability. Now, the Obama approach replaced a Bush-era policy from a decade earlier that discouraged affirmative action programs and instead encouraged the use of race-neutral alternatives like percentage plans and economic diversity programs. The Trump administration signaled Tuesday that it planned to reinstate the Bush administration's philosophy. Now, what this sounds like to me is a lot like what we've seen with the Mexico City policy, where America uses tax dollars to export abortion. and. What happens is when a Republican is in office, that policy is rescinded. When a Democrat is in office, they immediately reinstate the policy so that funds can go out across the world to pay for abortions in third world countries. And so this is something similar to that in that it's going to flip by administration until affirmative action is uh, repudiated by the Supreme Court, which could very well happen with a new uh, justice coming in, uh, which would tip the court to the conservative side. Now, I've had a number of, you know, you know how it is with these political, it's like a political football affirmative action. People like to discuss it and they're either for it or they're against it. And they oftentimes it's based on party affiliation and there's really no nuance to it. The reason affirmative action was needed is because there was a point in this country where people who worked in government and, and, you know, let people into colleges and were college administrators and things like that would not allow black people to participate. So the government stepped in and did this to try to right a wrong decades in the making where people had been denied opportunities because they were black. The issue is that, of course, when government fixes something, they often break eight or nine things in, you know, in, in concert with that. And I think affirmative action is one of those cases. The unintended consequence of affirmative action is that Black people are thought to never earn what they have, when in reality, in order for you to be chosen as a black person over another uh, employee for the federal government, at least, you have to have the same qualifications. But it still appears to be unfair. It appears to be unfair to black people if they're not chosen, all things being equal, if a white person is chosen over them. And so as Christians, our conversation around affirmative action has to be 
that we we want a merit-based system. We want there to be no favoritism in any way based on innate characteristics because we don't get to decide to be born a woman or a man or black or Asian or Hispanic or white. But by the same token, we want to discourage individuals who have animus towards people of another race from using that animus to prevent people from accessing opportunities. So if you're you know, listening to me say that and you think, well, then you're for affirmative action, I'm actually not. I'm not for it. I'm not for it, but I'm not against having people acknowledge the fact that these things happened. And I think that that's where the conversation goes off the rails. When we're talking about affirmative action from the conservative perspective and we frame it as something that's pure evil that has to be gotten rid of by hook or by crook and it needs to be crushed and it's just a, a horrible idea. Yes, the statistics show that it doesn't help students as much as it was meant to help students who are going into higher education if they're not prepared to attend the university for which they're chosen to attend strictly based on racial factors. If they ignore the educational background of the student, the student is much less likely to graduate and be able to actually benefit from that affirmative action placement. That being said, when do we discuss the historical implications and acknowledge them, just acknowledge that these things have happened, that blacks have been prevented from going to colleges that they were qualified to go to because they were black, that blacks have not gotten jobs that they were qualified to receive because they were black, and that that was wrong. I think when we as conservatives can acknowledge that wrong things have occurred, that we wouldn't want those things to happen going forward, that we wouldn't want those things to happen to ourselves, then it frees us up to discuss alternatives And that all goes back to our unwillingness to acknowledge that bad things have happened kind of mirrors Democrats' unwillingness to acknowledge that the reason kids aren't doing well enough to get into colleges and universities on their own based strictly on their test scores and merit is because the National Education Association controls K-12 public education, and they do that because they want to have better pay and benefits, not because they want to help kids get an education. The education of the children that they teach is secondary. And that the way that we do education in America, public schools specifically, where tax dollars are tied to the house instead of tied to the child, and where half of the country fights school choice, even though black parents in inner cities want it. Here's some great news. If you missed the deadline to sign up for a health care plan, or more importantly, if you signed up for a plan that you're just not happy with, you still have a choice. It's called MediShare. MediShare is a Christian healthcare sharing program. It's been around for 25 years. They have hundreds of thousands of members all across the country. And get this, over the years, MediShare members have shared more than $2.5 billion of each other's medical bills. Best of all, you could save a lot of money with MediShare. The typical savings for a family is about 500 bucks a month. Your savings may be less or more, but think about what you could do with that extra money every month. So if you think you're stuck with a high-cost health plan that doesn't have much to offer, think again. You can join MediShare anytime, so call them today and check it out. Here's the number to find out more. There's no pressure. They're super easy to talk to. Just hit star star 345. That's star star 345. Star Star 345. Hi, I'm Crawford Loritz with a Legacy Moment. Recently, I had a wonderful conversation with a friend of mine. We were getting caught up with our lives, especially about our children. I shared with him that I had had the privilege of being with his two adult sons recently. 
Both of them are involved in ministry, and I shared how impressed I was to see how God is using these fine young men. After I shared that with him, my friend said to me, You know, Crawford, I could die and go to heaven today. I could tell he's a blessed and joyful man. For the most part, all parents listening to me today desperately desire that their children live out the values they've been taught. We want our kids to do better, every last one of us. I remember my dad saying that to me, I want you to do better. And on the flip side, disregarding what you have been taught can bring tragic consequences. Listen to these words in Proverbs chapter 10, verse 1. A wise son makes a father glad, but a foolish son is a grief to his mother. We can extract three observations from this one verse. Number one, doing what is right brings great joy to our parents. It brings joy to their souls, joy to their hearts. Number two, make wisdom your friend and apply it to life's choices. Wisdom is not your enemy. Wisdom says, I'd better not do what I feel like doing right now. Let me move toward doing what is right. Make wisdom your friend. And then thirdly, fools live by impulses and immaturely exchange wise counsel for convenience. Don't be a fool. Do what is wise and what is right. Well, here's what I want you to remember today. Not everything that your parents tell you is meant to inhibit your life. Don't be a fool. Listen, learn, and live. More information about the ministry of Crawford Loritz can be found online at livingalegacy.org. Welcome back to the show. We had a massive like equipment thing going on at the studio, and so we had to kind of regroup and... So we're back, um, and I have no idea what's going on with my stream camera, but I ha- definitely have um, no ability to live stream to you right now. I'm not sure what's going on with my camera, uh, so I will work on that when we go to our next natural break. Um, it's just one of those days because we also were unable to get our guest up and running, um, and so I'll double check with him um, over the next break and see if we can still get him, but for now... I was actually discussing, we were going to the break, and I was discussing this affirmative action announcement by uh, the Trump administration. And I, I just want to make sure people understand when, when I'm talking about this, because we've gotten to a place in our national discourse where it's like an all or nothing. You either support something or you don't. You can't have any nuances. You can't have any understanding about why someone uh, you know, has, has a middle-of-the-road petition or, <clears throat> or position. And I don't really, I don't really have a middle of the road position. I do feel like it needs to be merit based, but I also think that takes an acknowledgement for us to go to a strictly merit based system means we have to acknowledge that we've come far enough in America that children actually can get an education and earn their way into the schools that they want to attend. And I also think that the sense of unfairness that a lot of Americans feel when they feel like they've not gotten an opportunity because someone else got it because of their race that is something that minority Americans feel very often as well. That's a conversation I wish we could have. And, and saying that, you know, enrages people. I know there's somebody right now in the audience who's thinking, I can't believe she's saying that because it seems like all we ever talk about is race. But isn't there a huge difference between only talking about how white people are horrible and everybody else is a victim? That's not really a discussion about race, is it? That's a discussion where one group of people is demonized as always being wrong and the other group of people is constantly painted as being victims. That is not 
the same as saying, you know, we acknowledge that there are some times in our recent history where people have been treated unfairly, but the government's solution to that has not been to right the ship. It's, it's actually made things worse. So what can we do now? There are things we, I think one of the things that the, pres, the, the president and the Trump administration should really be discussing is why we continue to have a federal department of education. Why do we have a federal department of education of a Republican president stood it up and it would be fantastic if a Republican president took it down? States used to decide among their municipalities and their state budgets how to fund their schools, what their educational systems look like. And yes, there was inequality at that point. The southern states were behind uh, the northern states, and there was a lot of discussion about how kids coming from the south were a full school year behind. The answer was not to make the federal government take over education and be in charge of setting standards. No, that was not the answer. We've tried that now. We see it doesn't work. Educational attainment is going down instead of going up. So what is the answer? The answer is, first of all, get the federal government out of the equation. Just like conservatives say we want the federal government out of college admissions decisions, we should want the federal government to be out of the business of deciding how individual states can run their K-12 public education. K through 12 public education controlled by individual states would much, just think of it, just break it down for a second. You've got the state of Missouri, and if the state of Missouri was in charge of their own educational product without having to report to the feds, without having to spend multiple millions of dollars a year on hiring staff and employees at the state and local level to handle reporting requirements to the federal government, to handle uh, the strings that are attached to Title IX and Title X funding and all these different type funding mechanisms, then they could actually devote themselves to figuring out where students are actually not receiving a good education and putting money there, putting resources there, because it's not always the money. The worst schools often have the highest per pupil expenditure. What if Missouri was doing something innovative, so innovative that the test scores were coming out and people were saying, wow, Kids coming out of Missouri are getting. Free to take advantage of that world class education and other states would want to have symposiums in Missouri to find out what are Missouri schools doing differently than our schools because they're attracting residents, they're attracting taxpayers, they're turning out a high class educational product that parents are dying to get into and their public schools are flourishing, their private schools are flourishing. Their uh, independent schools, whatever, all of the different charter schools, whatever, they're flourishing. At that point, then other schools, individual school districts or whole states could say, we're going to adopt that model and we're going to give it a try here, but we're going to tweak it because we have some extenuating factors that really, they're not the, they're not the same as Missouri. Could you imagine the innovation that would occur in, in education? And, that, and none of that has to happen at the expense of teachers. Because I, I know when I say bad things about the National Education Association, teachers automatically hear me saying bad things about teachers. But that's not it at all. I don't appreciate the NEA, the union. I love the teachers. I think the teachers are outstanding people who love their students. But they've been duped into thinking the only way that they can really have a good 
uh, work environment and have the kind of pay and benefits that they want is if they put the NEA first above their students. And I know plenty of teachers who they would absolutely bristle at that suggestion. They'd say, no, my students are first. They're absolutely first. I don't even belong to the union because not every teacher is in the NEA. But again, we see what the NEA has done with their vice-like grip, especially on inner city locations. And we know there's a better option out there. So how does the conversation about affirmative action, which it, primarily the big rub here is affirmative action in higher education, go back to K through 12? Well, students who aren't prepared for college are not going to do well. And that comes from their K through 12 education. So we have to fix the problem instead of treating the symptoms. How many times have you been to the doctor and you feel like you got treated and treated? In other words, instead of them listening to your complaints and sending you for some testing, they say, oh, you know what? That'll probably resolve itself. It sounds like you pulled this or that. And they give you a a prescription for 800 of, of Motrin or ibuprofen and then off you go. And they're not expecting to see you again. They expect you to take that pain medication. And when you stop taking it, the pain will not return and then you're done. But if the pain does return or it never goes away or the medication is not strong enough to take handle it, you, you have to go back in. And then you have to kind of demand, look, I really need, I need some tests because this pain is still here. I need to see a specialist. I need a referral to a specialist. I need something more. I posit to you that K through 12 education in this country is in need of more than just treat and street. We need to disconnect from the federal bureaucracy, and move in back to the states, back to the individual states, where just think of how easy it is to get rid of an elected official at the state level, as opposed to getting rid of someone who's elected at the federal level. Just think of how much more accountable a person is if they know that their constituents live in the same state they live in, and can travel the couple of hours down to the Capitol and actually sit in on their hearings and their public meetings and voice their concerns. When have we ever gotten an opportunity to voice our concerns to the bureaucrats in the Federal Department of Education? I don't know about you, but I've, I've never met a person who worked at the Federal Bureau, the Federal Department of Education. But I have met the school board members. There's an elected school board here in the state of Missouri. It's actually... It's not elected. They're appointed by the governor. Um, But there's a school board for the the entire state of Missouri. It's the Missouri School Board. It's a board of education for for the entire state. And I have met a couple of people who sit on that board. Met them at a conference. They're real people. I talked to them. I learned quite a few interesting things in the brief moments I had with them. But they are people that I can actually find and I can attend their meeting. That's what we need right now. We need to bring these issues back to the states and let the states handle them because the state is you. Bureaucrats in Washington, D.C. that you're never going to see or hear from, you don't know their names, they don't have public meetings. How's that happening? How's that working out for you? I don't think it is. All right, when we get back, we're going to have more for you, more Stacy on the right. We're back. Everything's connected. The wires are communicating. So stay right there.
This is Uncommon Moments. Here's former Super Bowl winning NFL coach Tony Dungy and his wife Lauren sharing from their book Uncommon Marriage. After winning Super Bowl 41, I thank God on the victory podium. CBS announcer Jim Nance asked me about being the first African-American coach to win the Super Bowl. And while I told him I was proud to represent so many coaches of color who had gone before me, that night was for Indianapolis. And I was also glad we won while doing things in what we believed was the Lord's way, embracing family and the things that truly mattered. That was special for Tony, for the Colts, and for us as a family. It was a reminder to me that the Lord will bless whatever platform we happen to have, as long as we give it to Him for His glory. Tony and Lauren Dungy, authors of Uncommon Marriage, learning about lasting love and overcoming life's obstacles together. Discover more at CoachDungy.com. Abraham Hamilton III. God put us in this world at this time to be salt and light. We don't fold because of the darkness that we're facing. This is not the first time in the world's history that it's gotten dark. God has called you and I to be his ambassadors, even in this dark moment. Tune in to the Hamilton Quarter, weekdays at 5 p.m. Central on Urban Family Talk. Victory McIntosh. Early will I seek thee, O Lord. Man, it's something about when you start your morning off right with Abba Father. I'm telling you, will the enemy come? Of course, he's going to do his job. But it should motivate you even more. Man, I got to stay connected to the mind of Jesus. How do you do that? By getting into the Word of God. You got to do it. Tune in to Word on the Street with Victory McIntosh. Saturdays at 9 a.m. and 9 p.m. Central on Urban Family Talk. This is Just a Minute with Stacey Washington. American culture is in decline. Sexual perversion is accepted. Mass shootings strike fear into families. Television shows promote suicide as children's programming. Church attendance is down. Newspersons defend the violent gang activity of MS-13 under the guise of every human possessing a spark of divinity. That's garbage. The human heart is depraved and wicked and in need of redemption, which can only come through Jesus. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, we learn that we are saved by grace through faith, not from ourselves, but through God's gift of salvation. Instead of glorifying wickedness, we must start with ourselves. Are we obeying God's word, living and walking with him? Is the evidence of our salvation noticeable? Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Jesus is the answer to a culture in decline. Let's call on him. I'm Stacy Washington. Find out more at StacyOnTheRight.com. This is Stacy on the Right on Urban Family Talk. In southern Colorado, a fast-moving wildfire has forced about 2,500 people from their homes. The spring fire started Wednesday night and has exploded nearly 24,000 acres now. A number of buildings have burned. It is not clear if any were homes. Also, the spring fire, 28,000 acres burned in Colorado with zero containment. So very concerned about that with no rain in the forecast for the west, especially the southwest. In Colorado, thousands of people have been evacuated. Heat and dry conditions helping to fuel those flames. Authorities in Colorado say at least one of the fires was intentionally set. A suspected arsonist is now in custody. Right here on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk, I cannot believe what I'm about to share with you. Um, you're probably thinking, 
um, oh, the Colorado wildfire, I'm not seeing so much about it anymore. They must be, you know, um, under control. Well, uh, yeah, they're working to contain what's going on and, and they're definitely doing their best to get it back under control. Um, and that's, you know, that's, that's good. Um, but what we're not seeing is we're not seeing any reporting on who actually set the wildfires. And the reason is because the person who's been detained and is suspected of doing this is an illegal immigrant. So, and, and apparently it's one of the fires, one of the locations was set by this individual. And so because of that, they're not going to continue to have, you know, widespread reporting on this. And that's kind of crazy pants. I know. Um, honestly, I know it's the Chateau fire, which has caused $900,000 in damage. The Weston Pass fire, $1,300,000 in damage. Sugarloaf fire, $173,000 in damage. Uh, Borough fire has cost $2,866,000 in damage. The 416 fire has caused $27.8 million in damage. And the Spring Creek fire, $6,500,000 in damage. So they've already spent over $39 million to fight the fires, and some of them are continuing to grow, uh, covering 80,000 acres. The spring fire is is covering 80,000 acres, Um, 52,000 acres, you know, differing numbers of land that's been burned to a crisp. And of course, untold numbers of people who have had to evacuate their homes because they're, you know, within the the range of, of their homes catching fire. And so I just, I'm at this point where, you know, I'm sorry, but who cares who started it? It should still be covered. People should still be covering uh, and, and, and talking about this. Why? Because it's important because people are, are losing their homes. And so this, this is another case of the media really being super biased against telling the truth. Do they think Americans don't have enough nuance to be able to, you know, absorb the information that this person um, who's an illegal immigrant set this fire? Uh, what do they think is going to happen? Maybe the reason they don't want to cover it uh, because of the illegal immigrant connection is because they've been advocating for us to run people out of public spaces or for themselves to run people out of public spaces because those people are working in the Trump administration. And maybe they think we'll retaliate by trying to run you know, immigrants out of public spaces. The only difference is we're not like that. That's not our, our way. And I, I point again to what we said back when, and I know there were plenty of people, fringe people, who said things that I absolutely disagreed with, uh, uh, you know, about President Obama and his family. And I always called it out on the show. I, always, I was always very, very um, adamant about not wanting people to say things like that. I didn't want that. And I, I stand by that. It, it is wrong for us to advocate for people to not be able to live their, their lives because of their political views. If it's just political views, as repugnant as they might be, though, that's not a crime. It's not a crime to hold views that are idiotic or that people hate or, or what have you. That's not a crime. And our criminal justice system doesn't even permit us to run people out of public spaces who we think might have committed a crime. It's innocent until proven guilty. So it's, it's, uh, 
I just think it's fascinating that, that they're not covering that story. It was something they were covering avidly. And now it's something that they're just not discussing at all. They're just like, whatever, you know, just whatever, not covering it. Um, so now I want to move over to this next story. Uh, the school district refuses to let parents see a series of videos after students were forced to watch them. Now, one guess as to what kind of videos they were. You know, they had to do with sex because the school district showed the videos to the kids without giving the parents any fair warning and they forced the kids to watch them. So there was no opt-out provision for kids to be able to say, I don't, I don't think I want to watch this. So you've got the, Christians, the Christian Post reporting this story. Parents and conservative activists are voicing uh, really outrage at a Pennsylvania school district that refused to provide links to pro- LGBT videos that were shown to about 2,800 students in April. In June, the social conservative religious freedom law firm Liberty Council sent a letter to the superintendent of the East Penn School District to request that the district disclose links to four videos that were shown to students at Emma's High School during the school district's LGBT Unity Week in April. The videos were a part of this activity that was organized for Unity Week and the Nationwide Day of Silence, sponsored by the National LGBT Lobbying Group, GLSEN. And that's the Gay and Lesbian Straight Alliance, something like that. Um, so the, the four videos that were shown to students, oh, Gay Straight Alliance Club? No, okay. Well, the four videos were shown to students, sponsored by the school's Gay Straight Alliance Club, and Principal Kate Keir is explaining a letter dated May 2nd that one of the videos in question was entitled Nine Questions Gay People Should Have, or that Nine Questions Gay People Have About Straight People. So another video was a clip from a CBS News story that explains what it means to be gender fluid and the negative experiences that people with fluid genders have in interacting with others. The third video was a compilation of clips celebrating marriage equality. The fourth video was titled Show Your Pride, Share Your Love, which included clips similar to those from the third video. So they got a statement from Kiaras in which he said, I have looked further into the one to two minute video clips that were shown last week as a part of the morning announcements. I learned that they were not created by the students in the communications class, but were pulled from YouTube and other online sources by the students in our GSA club and sent to the TV studio as a part of their Day of Silence project. I also learned that this practice was not new this year. Similar videos have been shown during the week leading up to Day of Silence for at least the past four years. Despite parents' requests to see the videos, Kira stated that the school board solicitor has advised that these videos cannot be sent to you because they are a part of a student project. Now, who, who amongst, yeah, yeah, who, that's not a good answer. I, why am I getting worked up? Because just think of it. This means they can show your kid anything. They could show your kid pornography. They could show your kid anything they want to during the school day. And if you don't put your foot down and let them know they're going to have to deal with you face to face and look you in the eye and explain what they're showing your kid and show it to you, that, that's what they'll do. They've got your kid all day long. No wonder parents are turning in droves to homeschooling because you just can't trust these rabid activists with your precious children. Who knows what was in those videos? If you're, if you want to have your, you know, toes curled up and your eyelashes blown back. Watch some gay pride videos, the, the, the uh, parades that they have during the, like once a year. Well, actually, this, well, it, it was, June was gay pride month. The 
they have children in the parades and they have men who are basically naked and their bodies are painted up like rainbows and they're walking around in the nude with kids nearby, like kids are in the crowd and kids are in the parade with them. Now, that may be fine for some people, but I'm going to tell you, you're, you're going to have to deal with me directly. You're going to have to look me in my eyeballs and explain a few things if you plan on showing my children nude men and sex acts. And then, what, I mean, do you think that's just going to be okay with me? It's not. And my kids are teenagers. Our, our children have already been through sex education. They've already had the, you know, Christian parent chat about you know, marriage and sex before marriage and pornography. We, we've discussed these things. We've shared them. We've discussed them from the biblical worldview. They've been to a Christian apologetics camp a number of years in a row where they've learned about the dangers of pornography and all of the different societal influences that demean physical relations between two people made in the image of God. And I would still be upset, even with all of that knowledge base, if someone showed my kids a video like that and didn't even think to, to maybe just send me a note home or an email and say, this is content that was covered in your child's class today. If you have any questions, here are the links provided. You can always reach out to me via email. Even if, if that's all they planned on providing is a courtesy notification, I would still be upset, but at least I could give them the credit of saying that they feel I have a right to know because these are our kids me and my husband's kids, that, that is. But that's not what happened here. So parents requested to see the videos. Kara's denied them the opportunity to see the videos because they say the lawyer for the school board advised that they can't be sent because they're part of a student project. Never mind that they're, they're uploaded to YouTube. If they're YouTube videos, if they're content taken from YouTube, then it's already in the public domain. It doesn't matter if it's a student project. You don't provide the name of the student who created the project, but you provide the content. So parents, along with the president of the state chapter of the American Family Association, objected at a school board meeting last month, arguing that their rights had been violated because they were not informed of the videos and were not given the opportunity to opt their children out of viewing the videos. Would the school allow the opposite view to be presented to the students? Diane Gramley, president of the American Family Association in Pennsylvania, which is a social conservative advocacy group, asked. And that's the rub here. Let's say they wanted to show these videos about gender fluidity and about the LGBT movement, which is something that's happening in this country. The Supreme Court legalized the alternative form of marriage, the redefinition of marriage known as same-sex marriage. And so if students in public schools are going to be taught about these issues, they should be taught about all sides of it that there is a significant number of Americans who do not agree with this and still adhere to a biblical ethos. Remember when they used to be able to read the Bible in school? So you, your child cannot sit at their lunch table and read their Bible. Children are not allowed to have Bible clubs in a lot of K-12 through public schools because that would be seen as condoning a religion. But the religion of bowing down to your sexual organs, that's allowed. And not only is it allowed, it's pushed onto kids so that they have to Watch a video about nine questions gay people have about straight people. Why would gay people have any questions about straight people? Why would they have any? Uh, so you're saying a gay person only lives in a world where there are other gay people and there are no other straight people around? It's that kind of foolishness that puts their so-called movement up for scrutiny and ridicule. Obviously, that is a ridiculous video to show to children. and. 
they didn't give the parents an opt-out mechanism. And I'll tell you why. Because parents would have said, the school day is for education, not for indoctrination into certain beliefs. And most parents would have said, thanks, but no thanks. I think I'm keeping my kid home that day. Or thanks, but no thanks. I'm not going to allow my kid to be exposed to that content. And I'll tell you what else. As a school board member, I definitely was in on training sessions where people talked about diversity training for students and uh, character education and things like that. And they would say the problem is when we present items like this to present to the kids, we have to provide an opt-out provision because in the state of Missouri, you have to provide parents with an opt-out. And some of the people in the room said, well, what if we don't want to allow the kids to opt out? How do we make sure that the kids get this content? And people were kind of shaking their heads and there was some murmuring. And one of the administrators said, well, the way that they're doing it in other states is they embed it in the curriculum so that they, it cannot be opted out. But that requires that the information go through the curriculum and instruction committee. And when it goes through the curriculum and instruction committee and is approved by that committee, then that embedded curriculum cannot be opted out of because if it's in something that's required to be taught by the Missouri Constitution, like history or social studies or, you know, civics, whatever, whatever people are calling it, then the opt out is no longer required. So there's always a way around a, a law that people have put in to make sure that parents have the opportunity to control what their kids see or at least be informed so that they can talk to their kids about what they absorbed at the school building. And, and that in and of itself is the reason why we as Christians have to be so vigilant. There's no time for sleeping or you know taking a rest or not stopping by the school building. Because when you don't stop by there, when you don't show interest, when you're not that parent that they know your name, they even know your birthday, they know your favorite pair of gardening shoes, if you're not that parent, then they feel empowered to do crazy stuff like this. Yeah, they'll be held accountable for it, but so will you. So get in that school building. It's not about being confrontational. It's about volunteering and knowing these teachers so they know they're accountable to you. You pay their salary. They work for you. All right, that's hour one. I'll be back with hour two right after 